0: Thanks Hannah for uh, reading our passage for us tonight. How's everybody doing? I hope uh, your, first w- your first week back went well for you. Um, I know we were here last week and it was the first day of classes and then tonight we're back after the first week and sometimes getting back into the groove after a long break can be difficult for us but I'm glad you joined us tonight and as you can see guys we're going to be jumping back into our series in the book of James. And so last semester, we spent about six weeks just walking through the first chapter of James. And that's where we left off, uh, the end of chapter one, and we're jumping into chapter two today. Um, But last semester, we ended with Zach Hume, our, our pastor of students, coming in December, and he really encouraged us to look closely at our walks with Jesus. We need to look closely at how we're walking if we want to be deeply formed in Jesus Um, With this idea that James is hitting on that we want to be people who do the word rather than merely hearing it. And so really in chapter 2 of James and even in the the rest of this letter, that's what James is going to do. He's going to address what it looks like um, as we examine our walks with Jesus to see are we being merely hearers of the word or doers? Are we being loyal to Jesus Are we being formed in Jesus, or are we being continually marked and shaped by the surrounding culture? That's what James is worried about. Or as I mentioned really in our first couple of messages on this letter, as we introduced it, James, he really just wants to answer this simple question, is your faith aligning with how you're living day to day? Does the orthodoxy or what I believe match my orthopraxy, the way I live, the things that I do? Those are the questions that James, are at, or, or James is seeking to answer in his letter as we continue in it. But, a lot, but also, he's trying to help us align what we say we believe about God's Word and being doers of that Word. That's James' desire. That's what he wants for us this, the rest of this semester as we journey through this book together is answering those questions. But before we jump into our time tonight, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, we'll, we'll get moving. But Father, we thank you for your Word, that you're a God who speaks to us. You long to form us and mold us more into the image of your Son through the power of your Spirit as he uses your word. And so, Father, what we are not, would you teach us? Or what we know not, Father, would you teach us? What we have not, Father, would you give us? What we are not, Father, would you make us? All for the sake of the glory of your Son, our Savior forever. Amen. And so I've entitled our message tonight this, The Gospel of Indiscriminate Grace. The Gospel of Indiscriminate Grace, as you can see on the screen. And as we journey through our passage, I think you're going to begin to see why I've titled it that. But um, really, tonight's message, it's going to focus on, a, on five simple points for us. I know five is a lot. Y'all are probably thinking, what the heck? But we're going to journey through these pretty quickly. But here are the five points, so um, you can begin to uh, take notes if you want. But we'll walk through each of these one at a time. So if you miss one, it's not a big deal. But here they are, five. First, the attitude expected. Second, the sin exposed. Thirdly, the God to emulate. Fourthly, the the law expounded or explained, you could put. And then fifthly, lastly, the mercy extended. And hopefully these five points are going to help guide us in our passage tonight um, to the point that James is seeking to make to us. And here's that point. If we were to sum it up, this will be on the screen. It's, It's this the gospel of God's indiscriminate grace, it ought to lead us to be a people marked by an indiscriminate welcome. So the gospel of God's indiscriminate grace ought to lead us to be a people marked by an indiscriminate welcome. In other words, if we say we follow Jesus, this glorious Lord of extravagant mercy and grace, whose gospel sought the poor and powerless our communities should begin to emulate this impartial gospel. That's, that's just the natural overflow for James. And if there is a word that I think embodies this, this passage tonight that we're walking through, maybe maybe even the whole letter of James, it's this simple word, consistency. Consistency. Because for James, being a follower of Jesus isn't just about conforming to some kind of religious expectation or behavior. No, that's not what he's about, but it's about our whole person being transformed. It's about our hearts beginning to align with what we believe and what we do in a holistic way. That's what he's about. And so if that's the case, to not embody the impartiality of Jesus is to live out in an inconsistent faith. So as a loving shepherd, that's what James is going to do. He's going to, as a loving shepherd, correct this ancient church, this ancient community of believers but also correct us as modern followers of Jesus to have a life that is consistent with living faith in Jesus himself. That's what he wants. Because as you'll see in our text tonight, this ancient body of Christians who received James's letter, these Messianic Jews, they were walking in this sin of partiality and they needed to be exposed and corrected. And maybe there's a sin in us that needs to be addressed by God's spirit tonight to bring about repentance and ultimately deeper formation to Jesus as well. So let's jump in. First point, the attitude expected. The attitude expected. So James, he begins this section of his letter by pointing his readers to a, cer- a certain kind of attitude or maybe an, a character trait that, sh- that they should embody. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. You have your phone and the Bible app will be in James chapter 2. We're going to walk through this passage um, like a little section at a time, but this is um, what verse 1 says to us as we read it earlier. But it says this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith that is in our, Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So James, he's as clear as day in what's expected of those to, who say they have faith in Jesus Christ, his half-brother. And that point is this. They sh- do not show favoritism. Or some translations might say partiality or discriminate. Or discriminate. Um, God's people. Ought not to be marked with favoritism. That is the fruit of our enemy. That is the fruit of the world, not Jesus. That's James' point in this first verse. That word in our Bibles, um, often translated as favoritism or partiality. What exactly does that mean, though? What does it mean to be a person who shows favoritism? Well, in the, the original language of James's letter, the Greek word James uses here is actually a play on the Hebrew word for favoritism, um, which in Hebrew it literally means to receive the face. To receive the face of someone. And theologian Doug Moo in his commentary on the book of James, he he tries to explain what this means to be a person who receives the face. It's this. It is to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or even race. So that's what it is. That's what favoritism is, to receive the face, to make uh, distinctions based on external considerations, such as so how someone looks, maybe their status in the, in the culture, or even maybe there's the color of their skin or the, or the culture that they're from. And you have to remember, though, the people who were receiving this letter, they were Jewish men and women who had embraced Jesus' message as the Messiah. So they would have known immediately this word th- uh, favoritism or partiality and the implications that it made. They would have begun to connect the dots. They would have thought of, um, Leviticus 19:15, where God says this, do not act unjustly when deciding a case, but here's the point. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Those are the type of passages they would have been remembering. Because the reality is, is, God has always expected those who love him to be a people marked by welcome and grace. That's how he's always been. That's not different. This isn't some new thing that Jesus brought. This has always been a continuation of what God has expected from his people, from his family. And so James, he isn't just giving them some command for a command's sake. That's not his point here. He's grounding this expectation, this attitude, in the person of Jesus himself. So, because James, he only refers to Jesus explicitly twice in his letter. In the first verse, James 1.1, 1, 1, and here in chapter 2, verse 1. Those are the only two places where he's explicit in his mention of Jesus, his brother. And he says, Jesus is the glorious Lord. Jesus Christ, he embodied this attitude and expectation himself. And for James to show favoritism or partiality based on someone's status, their race, their wealth, their outward appearance... It's inconsistent with Jesus, who we learn about in Philippians 2, says he leaves his eternal throne in heaven to actually become poor. He becomes a carpenter from the middle of nowhere, Bodunk, Nazareth. And Jesus' whole life in ministry, it was marked by a radical pursuit of the poor, a radical pursuit of the rejected. While what did Jesus do? He condemned the rich. He He condemned the powerful, the Pharisees. He came to break down these barriers that we tend to create. That's what our world does. We create these barriers of status and wealth and gender and race and maybe even nationality. But in Jesus, he he came to break those things down, as it says in Colossians 3.11. You'll see it on the screen. It says this. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So if you say you follow this Jesus... It's inconsistent to be marked by a worldly perverted partiality. That's James's point. He lays out the attitude, the life that is expected of a follower of Jesus. This is his point, which leads me to my next point, the sin exposed, the sin exposed. So how was this ancient community of Jewish Christians doing? How were they actually doing and living out being impartial and indiscriminate in their welcome? It doesn't seem like they're doing very well based on the text because James is going to give them an illustration to, to kind of nail down his point, a live illustration. Let's, let's begin reading at verse 2. This is what James says. For if anyone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and then a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor, <laughs> By my footstool? Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it seems that as if this church at least was was showing or marked by some um, showing favor to those who had money while neglecting the poor in their body. They they were making distinctions based on an outward appearance and status. This very well could have been a real-life example of the sin that this community was walking in. But what about us? What about our current cultural moment? How do we see this played out? Let me give you just a few examples. We see and hear churches and communities all the time who, who believe that if they could just reach the powerful, the influential, or the rich, they can, their impact and their reach would actually be expanded. Churches believe that. What happens in our country when a famous athlete or actor, musician, or maybe a politician becomes a Christian? What do we do? We immediately give them a mic and a platform. Because we assume that if that person speaks, their words will hold more weight and power when addressing our people. We neglect the warnings of God um, in in His word of of giving someone influence before they're ready, before their character is proven, and we do it anyways. Or what about someone with esteem and power enters a church on a Sunday morning? Where are the ushers going to seat them? The place of importance where everyone can see them, so that the church appears a certain way. I remember explicitly when I was living in Texas, 2016, I think it might have been later. Um, I was living in the Dallas area, but uh, and I'm not here to bash on this church. I'm just giving you a live example of, where, of ways we've seen this out or play out. But uh, First Baptist in Dallas, they're they're holding a Sunday morning gathering and they announce Donald Trump's coming, and they they make a big deal out of it. They have this grand. I understand he's the president. He's worthy of honor at that point. Uh, but in a way that they, they sit him in the, in the area where everybody can see. They have him get up and address the congregation, even though he's not a pastor and a teacher or anything um, spiritual in that sense. But all because they, they want to be recognized in a certain way. They want to be viewed in a certain way. And that's just one example. Let's hear another one. Man, I have been a part of, I've even worked um, in college. Again, I'm not bashing them. Everybody has their own ministry philosophy. Um, uh, but I've worked and been a part of college ministries who build their whole vision around reaching the mainstream, the mainstream on campus, whatever that means. The premise that is if we reach the influential, we can reach the campus. We need the athletes, the attractive, the students with clout in our gatherings, because if they come, then everybody else will. So let's spend our time. Let's, get, let's work our tails off to get those people in our weekly gatherings so that when people show up and see that the mainstream are in the room, they'll want to stay, and we'll and we'll disguise it under ministry strategy. It, it prioritizes the powerful, the influential, those with status over the students who may lack those qualities, and we disguise it all under the belief that we're merely being strategic in our ministry philosophy. All the while, we're neglecting the broken, the hurting, the poor, um, the the struggling students on our campuses because they don't fit our quote-unquote ministry model. Or let me even get more practical. Those might seem kind of out of your uh, scope. You may not even think about that, but what about your own life? This isn't just about ministries and a worship gathering. This attitude can permeate our personal relationships. We tend to be people who want people around us who make us appear a certain way. Naturally, we're built that. We, we, we commit to our tribes, and we want certain people around us. That's pretty much the college experience. That's what it is. I've done ministry. I've been on a college campus for the last, since 2011, um, and I've seen this play out. We often tend to choose people who we like or who we think will, will make people like us more or make us look a certain way, or we just want people who like what we like. They, they look like what we look like, or they vote like who we vote for. We create these tribes that we pledge our allegiance to. And if anyone comes to join who doesn't meet these requirements, these characteristics, no, 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 you're not in here. Get out of our tribe. We cast them aside. Both sides do this, conservative, the liberal, the progressive, everybody on the political spectrum, they'll do this. If they come from a different background than us, maybe socioeconomically, maybe the color of their skin doesn't fit, our, fit ours. They fail to champion what we champion. They have no welcome in my life. They have no welcome to be a part of my group. We can all fall victim to this attitude. Not, this isn't just about a Sunday morning gathering. And I've given a myriad of examples of this graceless partiality in our ministries, in our communities, and even our personal relationships. James is saying this ought not be so who say they follow Jesus. They should not be marked by this. For James, this isn't just failing to live up to some moral standard. He's saying this is an attitude that denies our faith in Jesus. He's saying, your faith, it's hard for me to believe it's genuine if you're walking in this attitude. That's what James is saying. He's being really black and white. That's how James is. In James, he's going to give us one of the reasons why. One he's already made clear in the opening verse, which moves us to our next point. Thirdly, the God that we emulate or the God to emulate. Look with me beginning at verse 5. This is what he says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? In heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Aren't it, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you in the court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? James, he's going to double down on this truth that our God is a God of impartiality, indiscrimination. That's the very gospel of his grace. He, was, he gave his gospel to the lowly, the needy, the outcasts. Well, its gospel was actually rejected by the powerful, influential, and wealthy, or those with wisdom. Didn't God choose the poor in this world? If God is partial, it's not to those with esteem and status, it's towards those who are poor and contrite in spirit. So for his people to claim to love and obey him while walking contrary to his character, he's saying, James is saying, that's a problem. You can be sure that the recipients of this letter, as Jewish men and women who would have grown up, indoctrinated in the Jewish synagogues, they would have been reminded of Deuteronomy 7 when when James was was teaching them here. Look look at what Deuteronomy 7, beginning at verse 6, says to us. This is what Moses says to his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His treasured possession, but here's the point. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What James is saying here, he's saying God has always been this way since the beginning. He is a God of indiscriminate favor, grace, and mercy. And that's who um, made us in his image in his, to display his character to, to the rest of his creation. We were made in the image of this God. So for James to walk in partiality or favoritism is a, di- a direct contradiction to living out God's image in us. So James is saying you are being, um, you're, you're marring God's image when you, when you walk in favoritism. When you walk in partiality in your relationships and communities, But it's not just that. It's not just that we fail to live up to God's image in us. But fourthly, the law expounded. The law expounded. You can even put the law explained. So James, he doesn't simply ground this attitude in God's nature, in God's character. But he's also going to ground this in the Old Testament and in Jesus' teaching. Let's keep reading in verse 8. It says this, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So James is clear that this is just a matter of fulfilling Jesus' greatest commandment. Which Jesus says in Matthew 22. This is where he's quoting from. Matthew 22 beginning at verse 37. It says this. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. For this is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets. What he's saying, all the Old Testament depends on these two commands. So for James, this is a matter of loving God that is spilling over into our love for our neighbor. This is a matter of being obedient to Jesus. It's a matter of living out God's commands for James. And James is going to keep his argument going by saying not uh, or not to do this is to be guilty of sin. Look at, look at verse 9 with me. He says this, if however, so he just said, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And in verse 9 is another if. If however you show favoritism, if you're walking in this partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the laws transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not murder. So if you do not, do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. So James, he begins by saying that if we obey Jesus' greatest command, loving God and our neighbor... We're abiding in our faith in Jesus. We're doing well. But if we're walking in partiality, he's saying we are guilty before God as lawbreakers. It's really that black and white for James. James is not going to sugarcoat it. He wants us to understand the truth. In this Jewish community of believers, they were neglecting the poor and powerless in their gatherings, and they were catering to the rich and wealthy and powerful, and James wanted them to know. They were allowing the distinction and ways of this world to influence them, not the gospel of grace. And James, he wants us to know that to follow Jesus, it's going to cause us to begin to look radically different from the world. The world, it wants to put us in distinctions, it wants to separate us by tribes, by people who look and act and and, and even vote and and think like we do. But James is saying we ought to live counterculturally. In simplest terms, James is saying the, world's, the world does it this way. It values the rich and the neglects the needy. It sets up distinctions based on success and notoriety and power and race and wealth. But it not ought to be the people of God. It's like James is asking him, why are you looking like the world? You should be different. So James, he wants them and us to feel the weight of us. He wants us to feel the weight of our sin. It's not just something that's insignificant to God. God cares about how we're living and, and what we're doing, what we're producing, the fruits of our life. It, it matters to him how we're welcoming and generous and are welcome to all people. Regardless of the way they look, act, vote, how much money they have, the, 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 the clout they have, he cares about that. And he's saying, if you do this, you're, you're guilty before God. You are being unfaithful as a disciple of Jesus. That's the weight that James wants them and us to feel. Which brings me to my last point. The mercy extended. The mercy extended. Look at verse 13 together as it says this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So again. James is grounding all of his teaching here in the teaching of Jesus. And ultimately the teaching of our God since the beginning. God's people were always meant to be a people marked by mercy. They could remember Zechariah 7 where it says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the poor or the alien. There's, in reality, there's a myriad of Old Testament passages I could have picked that kind of lay out this reality because God's been this way since the beginning. My people should be marked by this. But it's not just the Old Testament. James is also alluding to the teaching of Jesus Jesus in his own Beatitudes in, in Matthew 7, he says, Those who are blessed are those who show mercy. So James is saying, you're being unfaithful to Jesus if you're not walking in this. Or even James's, or Jesus' famous parable of the unforgiving servant. He makes it clear that those who fail to give mercy will fail to receive it. They fail, they're not understanding the gospel. To discriminate or show partiality is to, is to fail to be a people of mercy. And it reveals that we fail to understand the mercy that we've received. But James, he doesn't end there, but he wants us to feel that. He wants us to feel the weight, but he doesn't end there with just us feeling guilty. He's not trying to condemn us for condemnation's sake. That's why he ends this message with, or this passage with a word of hope. Where he says, mercy, it will triumph over judgment. He's saying, those who are in Christ Jesus, by the grace that is offered to them in the gospel... Though they may fail to uphold this law perfectly, there's mercy for them. Those who are failing to to walk in an indiscriminate grace and mercy and welcome to one another, there's mercy for them. James wanted them to feel the weight of their sin before God so that they would be eager to run to him as the source of their mercy, the fount of their mercy. They needed to see their sin so that they would see their need for transformative grace. And the same is true for us tonight. There's mercy for those who eagerly turn from their sin and collapse into the grace of Jesus. I use that word collapse all the time because it's it's a verb everybody can do. It's merely collapsing. It's just falling into the grace of Jesus. But this is also a call to those who don't know Jesus. They can stop trying to perform their way to God, earning merit and grace from Him. Because James is saying if you fail at one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. The person can stop trying to live up to some perfect expectation and requirement that we have kind of outside of Jesus, and they can embrace the gift of grace that's offered to them in the gospel of Jesus's work. Mercy will triumph over judgment, but only for those who are made righteous by Jesus's work, not their works. That's what James is saying. Mercy will triumph over judgment for those who are marked by Jesus's righteousness, not their own so as I close, we go back to verse one of our passage. I think this is important to close this way, but this is what James says, as I remind you, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know why James grounded, or you want to know what James grounded his argument for killing impartiality in our lives and communities? Uh, what did it? What was kind of the motivation or Or what should kill partiality in our hearts? The truth that the only one who's really worthy of any glory is Jesus alone. He alone is glorious. He alone is worthy of the utmost honor, not us. And this for James puts all of us on equal playing field before before one another. All of us uh, fall short of the glory of God. It puts us on equal playing field. Jesus alone is worthy of all the glory. That's the point he's making in the first verse. But let's go back to thinking about the nature and character of Jesus for a second in light of this idea of impartiality or indiscrimination or favoritism. Instead of pursuing the religious elite in Israel, a.k.a. the Pharisees, he invites lowly fishermen and tax collectors into his discipleship, those that the religious elites probably rejected, because that's the truth. These disciples of Jesus, they were a little bit older. They were probably in their late teens, maybe early 20s for some of them. They probably were rejected by the rabbis. They were probably rejected by the rabbis who were teaching the, the, the people of Israel. They probably didn't live up to some standard. But Jesus says, no, those are the people I want in my kingdom. Those are my disciples. I'm going to pursue lowly tax collectors and fishermen. Another one. Instead of adhering to the prejudices of the Jews who hated the Samaritans, the half-breeds, Jesus used the Samaritan as the hero in his parabolic teaching. The, this, the Samaritan was the main character that his Jewish people were to emulate. Just think about that. What that would have done in them. Instead of bowing down to the discrimination and disregard for women in his Jewish culture, Jesus pursues a sexually broken Samaritan woman to reveal himself to. And he calls her to faith in himself. But then, not just that, he uses her testimony to draw her whole town into faith in him. Instead of demanding and taking from his disciples like the other rabbis of his time, Jesus, this rabbi, he bows down to wash the feet of his disciples. Instead of a a kingdom that usurps the power that the Jews expected him to bring, the Jews expected him to usurp the throne of, of Rome. No, that's not what Jesus does, though. No, Jesus decides to lay down his life and give up his rights for the sake of saving his people And then offering a radical adoption to his family. I'm not going to usurp them explicitly. I'm actually going to do it by a subversive kingdom, not a usurping one. Instead of rejecting or forgetting his enemies, Jesus actually lays down his life for his. Romans 5 makes that clear. That when it says, "While we were yet Christ's enemies, he died for us." You see, that's that's Jesus. That's our glorious Lord. That's our Savior and King that we follow if we say we're Christians. In James, he says it's inconsistent for those who claim allegiance to this Jesus to walk in partiality or favoritism or discrimination if we long to emulate him. If we long to live holistically. But not only that, to walk in partiality or favoritism is failing to understand the way God has treated us in his gospel of grace. Where we were his enemies, yet he welcomed us with an extravagant welcome in grace. And what the gospel ought to do in our hearts when we believe it is transform us more into emulating the way of Jesus. That's what it should do in us. That's what James is about, as I said at the beginning. Being doers of his word. Being holistic disciples. Orthopraxy meeting with orthodoxy. Being people who bring dignity and honor to those that our world often tends to ignore. Being people who instead of catering to the powerful, wealthy, or successful, or those who can elevate us, We would seek to be welcoming of all people, regardless of the distinctions that are are these tribes that our culture tries to separate us into. And that's what I long for our community here at College Life to be marked by, an impartial grace and welcome. Where anyone can come, wherever they're at on their walk with Jesus, where they're at on the social uh, or economical platform, wherever they're at politically, they can have a seat at the feet of Jesus, the only one who's really worthy of glory and honor anyways. So for James, this is an issue, or this issue was a matter of loyalty to Jesus. It was an issue of validating the genuineness of our faith. It was an issue of being a doer of the word that we say we believe. It's the fruit of a heart that has been captured by the loving grace of Jesus. That's what James is saying. So how are you doing in this? Tonight's message wasn't to bring condemnation or shame. All of us probably walk in favoritism, partiality in some kind of way. I know I do. But James would say, there's mercy for you at the feet of Jesus. And the only way you're going to be transformed is by looking at this Jesus, this indiscriminate, impartial, welcoming, generous Savior, and having His Spirit transform you. And He will. But let's pray. Father, I thank You for tonight. Father, I thank You for being a God of indiscriminate grace and welcome and mercy. Lord, all of us have fallen short in this. All of us us aren't holistic disciples. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but Jesus, there's grace for us. Thank you for the the throne of of your grace where you're eager to bestow it to us. And for your mercy, we don't get what we actually deserve. And Jesus, you also promise to transform us through the power of your spirit. You want to make us holistic disciples and you promise to do so. And so, Jesus, as we look to you today and tonight and the rest of this week, would what we behold transform us? Would your um, countercultural life make us different? And would we be a people who are marked not with favoritism or partiality or discrimination, but a generous, indiscriminate, gracious welcome of all people? Because for James, this was a black or white issue. This was a big deal. This wasn't something we sweep under the rug. And so, Father, you have to do it in us, though. We can't muster this up. And so, Father, would you um, show us grace tonight? Would Would we run to your fountain of mercy? Would we not walk in condemnation or shame? That's the enemy. That's not you. And Jesus, would you use tonight in a minute way to make us more like yourself? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.